Good morning, everyone. Once again, thanks, thanks, thanks for being here as we are continuing to study the revelation of the person and work of God's Messiah, God's anointed, God's Christ, all three words meaning the same thing. As we see the Old Testament whispering and intimating and looking forward to and giving us types and shadows, glimpses through the sacrificial system, the law, the ceremonies, the priesthood, and through various other means, God is saying, the Messiah is coming. The Messiah is coming. He is coming who will undo all the effects of the fall because of Adam's sin. He who will fulfill in himself, by himself, all the requirements of obedience that Adam failed to fulfill. He himself, in himself and by himself, will restore all of God's children, all of God's family, back to the place that God had originally intended us to be. And that is, we are to be his living, walking, breathing, manifesting image upon the earth. So that when the people of the world, when the angels of heaven, when the demonic forces look at us, at us right here in this room, they're going to see a company of people in whom and through whom the work of the Holy Spirit is so pervasive and so effective that God is reproducing in us that living reality of the community that he himself enjoys as the three persons of God relate lovingly through their roles. That's what God is doing. So we are speaking of him in the Old Testament who fulfills all this and having fulfilled it in his obedience first, then culminating in obedience to the cross. Because sometimes, you know what we do? We talk about Jesus fulfilling and we begin at the cross. Well, it doesn't begin at the cross. The cross would never have been possible had Jesus not been a walking, completely obedient man when he got to the cross. Had he sinned one time, the cross is emptied of its power, emptied of its power. And so finally, a man has merited God's favor for us. He has worked and earned through his own righteous good works our receiving the mercy of God. And then it's culminating on the cross. You remember Paul talked about that. Obedient, even what? Obedient to death on the cross. Even that is the extent of the obedience. So this morning we continue to look at these references, these shadows, as we are looking at the seven Levitical festivals. Now, what chapter, 
What book of the Bible are the Levitical festivals? In what book? Leviticus. In what chapter? 23. The festivals are talked about in other places, but they are collected and enumerated chronologically in chapter 23 of Leviticus. That's why we're emphasizing that chapter, even though we may reference some others. So this morning, well, last week, remember the last couple of weeks, we talked about Passover, the death of the lamb. We talked about unleavened bread. Remember, no corruption. God's holy one will not see corruption. Even though he will die as indicated and typed in the Passover, he will be put in the earth. His body will not see corruption. You remember that. We talked about that. Unleavened bread. Get the leaven out because it is an element or an, uh, it, it generates corruption, fermentation in the bread. So that's what that is speaking about. This morning, we're talking about the Feast of First Fruits. Leviticus 23, 9 through 10. So the Lord said to Moses, speak to the Israelites and say to them, when you enter the land I am going to give you and you reap its harvest, bring to the priest a sheaf of the first grain you harvest, you harvest. He is to wave the sheaf before the Lord so it will be accepted on your behalf. The priest is to wave it on the first day after the Sabbath. Now, what day is the Sabbath? Not necessarily. You see, I did that to catch you. Remember what we said last week. Typically, under normal conditions, if festivals are not involved, a Sabbath or the Sabbath is which day? The last day of the week, remember? Okay, we know that. But when it comes to the festivals of God, the beginning day of the festival and often the last day of the festival is a special Sabbath. So you can have Sabbaths when you're involved with these festivals at different days of the week. Now remember that. That's significant in understanding especially the activities of the Passion Week of Jesus. So it says, you shall wave it on the first on the day after the Sabbath. Now notice that this feast was, first of all, celebrated on the day after the Sabbath. What Sabbath? Well, if you go back in Leviticus 23 before verse 9, what is the Lord giving instruction about? He is giving instruction about the Feast of Unleavened Bread. On the 14th of Nisan, Passover. The day, next day, what? Unleavened Bread. Now, let's look at what he says about unleavened bread. Remember that. This is the second day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, since the first day was a special Sabbath. The Feast of Passover, then Unleavened Bread. Unleavened Bread is a special Sabbath. It begins. That's the 15th of Nisan. That's a special Sabbath. Remember, we talked about that last week. Do some of you remember that? It's a special Sabbath. A special holy convocation is what God is talking about. On it, you shall do no work at all. So it's a Sabbath day. So that's the Sabbath that the Lord is speaking about. You have Passover beginning on this day. You have the next day is a special Sabbath which inaugurates the seven days of unleavened bread from the 15th to the 21st. And the 21st, it ends on a Sabbath. But So unleavened bread begins on the 15th, which is a special Sabbath. 
then when he talks about the feast of the first fruits, he says, after the Sabbath. Well, what Sabbath are we talking about? The Sabbath that just ended for unleavened bread. Do you understand that? So it may or may not be a Saturday. It could be any day of the week, depending on the moon cycles, etc. And so this is the, uh, sorry, the second day after the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Why? Since the first day of Unleavened Bread is a special Sabbath. Therefore, the date of the first fruit celebration was the 16th of Nisan. The 16th. So Passover is on the 14th. Unleavened Bread begins on the 15th and continues to the 21st. But during the celebration of unleavened bread you have on the 16th the celebration of what first fruits you see how that are we are we together on this so we have these first three festivals one two three 14 15 and 16 following one another a sheath or a dry measure of flour was brought to the priest who would mix it with oil and wave it before the Lord for his acceptance. He would take this and wave this as an offering before the Lord. When? On the 16th, the day after the special Sabbath. Now, no one was allowed to use any part of the harvest until the first fruit offering was presented to the Lord. To do so was considered robbing the Lord of that which belonged to him. He says, the harvest is beginning to come up, but in anticipation and by faith knowing and depending that God will bring the harvest, we are going to celebrate the coming of the harvest by taking this first fruit and by taking it and waving it before the Lord. It is, if you would, a down payment. It has the same theological significance as a tithe a down payment it represented the rest so on the first fruit in uh, on the day of first fruits the waving of the the first fruit of the uh, sheaf was a representation before the lord that we trust you as we give this to you as our down payment to say that we trust you for the rest of the harvest that's coming in very much the issue of tithing you see very much and so not to do that was to rob God of what belonged to him remember in Malachi 3 8 the word is talking the uh, prophet is talking about will you rob God well how have we robbed you he says you have robbed me by withholding from me that which I have decreed is the way that you honor me to trust me for the rest of the harvest. You see, something of a tithe offering on our part is God's decree that he is to be honored, and this is his decree to us that this is the way financially and very practically that you will demonstrate that you trust me for the rest of the harvest. And not to do so is to rob me is to rob me, is to take away from me that which I am due. What is that? I am due faith, honoring, obedience. And so we are robbing God of that which is solely significant to him. So this sheath is a down payment. It's a tithe. It's that which represents the rest. 
this festival anticipated the full crop of wheat, which was to be gathered when? When was the gathering of the harvest to begin? Fifty days later, fifty days after the waving of the sheath before the Lord, fifty days later, the harvest was to be then gone out. You go out and we collect the harvest. So you understand the difference here and what this is anticipating and talking about. Fifty days later, 49 days, seven sets of seven plus one. Again, sevens, the completed work of God. Seven sets of tens, 49 days plus one. And on that 50th day, then the Lord says, now the harvest will be gathered into my barns, if you would. The feast celebrated the result of the first, uh, the, sorry, the feast of unleavened bread. Now, before I continue, I want to talk a little bit more, and I didn't have any in my notes, and I actually, I think I forgot it. The down payment is our obedience to God to say that we trust him for the rest, correct? It's a down payment. It's a tithe. What is God's down payment to us? What is God's down payment to us? You see, God not only has said to us, Gordon, I want you to honor me with a down payment. But God has secured and guaranteed that we would be his people by placing in us a down payment, a tithe, if you would. It's called the Arabon. And who is the Arabon? The Holy Spirit. And where do you see that scripture? For he is the down payment. Where do we see that? In Ephesians Chapter 1, remember verses 13 and 14. That's where you see the down payment. He is our down payment. And so you see all of a sudden how intricate God is in this case and in every case. What he's telling these people to do as an outward expression, typifying and anticipating that which will come, he himself does in Christ, then giving us the down payment is as his securing, guaranteeing us that we are his children. Having given us the Holy Spirit, then he promises to keep us by the Holy Spirit. That the work he does in us, causing us to have faith in Christ, remember, for by grace you have been saved through faith. That is not a, your own works. It is a gift of God, lest any of you should boast. And that faith which we have welling up in us to receive Jesus as our Savior is the work of the Holy Spirit gifting us with that ability and with that empowerment. And it is that same faith that God generates in us and keeps going in us day after day in every circumstance of life, keeping us going. So you see, we were saved, if you would, by the good work of faith as God's gift to us. And we are maintained in our salvation by the continuing good work of God's graced, empowered faith. So don't anyone think that once you're saved by faith, works have nothing to do with it. Our work of faith-filled god given, generated, grace-inspired, empowered faith is our work. Amen? It is. 
I said yes to Christ. Is anyone in here you were saved and you didn't say yes to Christ? You did it. But why did you do it? Because God gave it to you to do. And so when a gift is given to you, whose is it? It's mine. So I did it, but I didn't do it of my own accord. I did it as a result of a gift. And the operation of that gift that received God's grace has to continue through my life through obedient, faith-filled, grace-empowered works of righteous obedience. Amen? It's important. We cannot separate the two. We must make sure that we see what God is doing as a continual work. We're not saved by faith, uh, by grace through faith, and then we just kind of drift along. We would never have been saved had we not expressed faith. Do you believe that? Yes. And we cannot be kept saved unless we continue to express what? Faith. Well, what does that mean? If I don't have faith, I'm... We cannot continue until, unless we continue to express what? Faith. That's all you need to know. You don't need to know what, all the, what ifs. You don't need to know this. All you need to know is, having begun by faith, I am going to continue by faith. You see, so God will keep me, but through the means of faithful works. Not just through no means at all. Sometimes the church gets weak in this because we have to be careful not to emphasize the grace of God in giving us something free of our personal merit, emphasizing that so much that we put down the whole concept, we don't need to work. Well, certainly we need to work. There is the work of salvation, not for salvation. And so Jesus says, if you continue, if you don't fall away, Remember those kinds of terms, those warnings? So let's remember to look at our lives on a daily basis and be sure by listening to the Holy Spirit and being convicted of weak faith or maybe not even activity of faith in an issue of sin to receive his empowerment and building up so we continue to move forward and be strengthened and matured in Christ until that day. Amen? That's what we must do. We have to do it that way. So I think we need to be very careful, and I know this came up in our covenant group the other night talking about faith and works and Galatians, and we have to be very careful, friends in Christ, that when we talk about works among ourselves or to others, we have to be very careful to make sure that our terminology is clearly, biblically defined. For on one case, works do not save nor can they save me and in another case works do save and they keep me saved do we see the distinction are we clear on that that has to be very clear but we have to know it so the Arabon who is the Arabon the down payment the Holy Spirit has somebody looked up that verse yet and what was it what 14 so what does he say we have the Arabon. We have been given the Arabon, the down payment of the Holy Spirit. Verse 14. 13 and 14 talk about the work of the Holy Spirit and that great, that great 
portion of, uh, of uh, Scripture. By the way, I don't know whether they're still available, but Bill taught this set of Scriptures, Ephesians 1, 3 through 14. When did you do that, Bill? Two or three, four years ago or 100 years or whatever it was ago? <laughs> I don't remember. But we still may have CDs or copies of, whatever of that teaching. Let me encourage you to get that. Those verses probably encapsulate the gospel more clearly and more succinctly and the work of the Trinity more dynamically than any set of verses that I know about. And someone could disagree, but that's just my concept of that. It is an incredible statement that Paul makes. And Bill went through for several weeks delineating that and showing us what it all meant. So let me encourage you maybe to try to find out how to get those tapes and listen to them. So the first three set of festivals or feasts what are they Passover on the 14th unleavened bread on the 15th and first fruits on the 16th okay those first three festivals anticipate what what was God really saying in those festivals? Could you remember that first set of festivals was one of the three sets of festivals that God required all the males to come to Jerusalem. That's why on the day of Passover, so many folks were in Jerusalem. I mean, that's where they all came from, this great celebration. But what do they anticipate? What are they speaking about? What do we see in the death of the Lamb? What do we see in his body not being corrupted? And what do we see in the first fruit? We see what? A picture of the first advent of Christ. We see that in this. I wonder if, if I said something here, I want to make sure. Hold, hold on a minute. I'm going to look back in here a second. Well, I don't know what I did with the, the, uh, the references here. But if when we look at the first fruit, Colossians, 1 Corinthians 15, what does Paul talk about as he's talking about the resurrection? He says, Christ is our first fruit. He is the first fruit of them who have been risen from the dead. Paul takes the idea and the festival picture of first fruits and says, that festival was speaking about the resurrection of Christ, that Christ was crucified and he remained in the grave for that period of time until on the day of the first fruits, on that Sabbath, as the Sabbath came to an end. You remember, remember the Sabbath begins when? At sundown. On that day, on that seventh day, Jesus rose from the dead. And he became the first fruit of them that slept. Meaning that he himself was the beginning of a new humanity, the humanity who would in themselves be the image of God. Remember, he is the exact image of the invisible God. Hebrews 1.3 tells you that. And now God has upon the earth for the first time since Adam, he has upon the earth an innocent man, innocent of all sin, who has paid the price for us, and we were in him, not being declared innocent, but being declared not guilty because of his payment for our sin. And finally, God has his, if you would, last or second Adam upon the earth, in whom and through whom 
God's people would be birthed, just as in Adam, as Adam was to be the progenitor of a race of people who would be God's people, innocent of sin, completely obedient, having fallen from sin that ended, fallen because of sin that ended. So Christ now becomes the second Adam, if you would. And his race of people will be birthed. And in these people, God will have a people whom he has justified and has declared as righteous with the same righteousness as God's son. So when God sees us, we are in God's sight, having been declared by him to be such, we are as righteous as God's own son. Can you imagine that? We are as righteous as God's own son. We're not half righteous, almost righteous, going to get there one day righteous. We are today and will be forever declared by God and accepted by God as righteous as his own son, as if we had never sinned, as if we had never sinned. Now, that's powerful, and you can't get your mind around it. But all you can do is to say, I accept it. Don't understand a whole lot about it, but I'm going with it. Because we are now the righteousness of God in Christ. Righteousness of, did I say righteousness of God in Christ? That's who we are. Amen? And so now as God's people upon the earth, what are we told to do? Romans 6, 4 says what? That all of this has happened, the death and the burial of Jesus and the resurrection has happened. Why? So we might walk in newness of life. Newness meaning having been recreated. We have been morally, solically in our souls been reconstituted as God's people. And now because of that, having received the Holy Spirit, we are to walk in newness of life. That's why we were saved. To walk in a way that through our good works of faith, we are literally demonstrating what righteousness looks like. We are showing to the world what the righteousness of Jesus Christ actually looks like and sounds like. That's what we're doing. That's how we're living. And that's why sin is so dastardly destructive. Because when we sin, we are tearing down that picture. So we strive not to sin through confession, through repentance, through obedience, through being cleansed by the Spirit, by knowing the Word, through prayer, through fellowship, through walking with one another, through mutual accountability and correction and encouragement. We strive not to sin so that the activity of sin is diminishing, uh, diminishing in us, and as a result of its diminishment, righteousness, righteous acts are increasing in us so that increasingly so, individually and corporately, the world is being shown the life of another man so that they look at us, they are seeing the reality and power of another man, of God's man, who is still on the earth in us by the Holy Spirit. That's what's going on. Let's get to the next one. So the feast of what? The first fruits. It anticipates the coming of the harvest how many days later? 50 days later. Leviticus 23, 15 to 17. 
you shall count seven full weeks from the day after the Sabbath. From the day that you brought the sheath of the wave offering, you see? After the Sabbath is the 16th. Remember the day you brought in the, the, the offering. You shall count 50 days to the day after the seventh Sabbath. Then you shall present a grain offering of new grain to the Lord. This feast began the 50th day after first fruits. On the morning of the feast, this is called Pentecost. Remember why Penta? Because what does the word Penta mean? Remember? The Pentagon, how many sides does it have? Five. So Pentecost means five. It's 50. It is the word for 50. That's all we're saying here. This is the Feast of Pentecost, the Feast, if you would, of weeks. It was called the Feast of Weeks. Why? Because you had to wait seven weeks. But we call it Pentecost, and that's just fine. On the morning of the feast, the priest would present a new grain offering with two loaves of bread before the Lord as representing the rest of the, the harvest to come. This is the harvest that God gives, and he is waving this before the Lord and presenting it before the Lord so now we can go out into the fields to collect the harvest. What happened? What happened on the day of Pentecost? What happened on the day of Pentecost? Remember, Jesus dies, he is raised again, and he appears to his disciples and begins a period of what? 40 days of in and out of their presence, eating with them, communing with them, fellowshipping with them for 40 days. Then at the end of the 40 days, you remember he is taken up into heaven. And as he is taken up into heaven, he says, all authority in heaven and earth has already been given to me. You see, when he is taken up on that 40th day, he is not going up to heaven to receive authority. He is not going up to heaven to be crowned king of kings and lord of lords. He's not doing that. God, why do I know that, Frank? Because he says, I've already been given it. So sometime or another, after the initial resurrection, Jesus is crowned king of kings and lord of lords by God the Father. And he is given all authority as a man by God the Father sometime or another before that 40th day. You know, sometimes believers think that's the day he rises, he's crowned and all. No, 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 that's not what happened. What does he say? All authority in heaven and earth, what? Has, you can put already, because that's what it means, been given to me. This is something that he has already been given and that he is giving authority and command to his disciples for the next days. He doesn't tell them, but we know it's 10 days. You wait in Jerusalem to receive the promise of the Father. You wait until the Father gives you this promise. Now, they don't know how long they're going to wait, but Jesus does. So here we have the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the ruler, the one, the man who sits on the throne of God the lamb who sits on the throne. He is now upon the earth in visible form, ready to leave and to command his disciples to wait for the power of the Holy Spirit. Why? Because giving the giving of the Holy Spirit is the initial wave offering gift of God into his disciples, these men and women, these 120 people. 
And as they receive that, now they become co-participants with God in the going out into the world to collect the harvest, the church of Jesus Christ. So the Holy Spirit is God's great <coughs> evangelist. You say, Joe Blow is an evangelist. Well, he is. But why is he an evangelist? Because he's given the gifting of evangelism. However, is every believer an evangelist? Yes. Some differently gifted and differently empowered. But all of us now are evangelists. And all of us are functioning under the power and the leadership of the Holy Spirit. For what purpose? Now to gather in the harvest. So you see, the first three festivals connote what? Christ paid for the church. He purchases the church in the first advent. The second set or one harvest which the Holy Spirit, uh, God said, every male shall come into Jerusalem is Pentecost. So that's why in Acts 2, when all that uh, commotion is happening in the upper room, you know, and all these people, what in the world are these people doing? They're yelling and screaming and talking all kind of languages. And, and what is all this noise about? What's happening? And Peter goes out there and he says to this crowd, where do these people come from? Why are they all in Jerusalem? Because this is the second set of meetings that God has required that all Jewish males, and of course some of them are going to come by themselves, maybe bring their family. So you have a whole lot of folks in Jerusalem. It's a crammed city. It's a very packed city. And on that day, all these people are gathered, and the Holy Spirit descends, and he fills these people with his power, and they go out and they begin to, what, preach the gospel, and suddenly within a few minutes, however long it takes, thousands are saved. You see, the harvest begins to be gathered in. The harvest begins to be gathered in. I need to, give me a moment to look forward into this because I had something written here and I don't remember where I put it. So I'll have to, to look at that later. Now, I don't know whether I want to go into this next one because it's going to take a while and I don't want to do part of it. So give me a break here, and I think that we might end early today only because of that. And the other thing is I'm concerned that maybe I left out some notes here because I wanted to talk about the two loaves of bread. Why two loaves of bread that were waved on that day? So we want to talk about that. I can just mention this. Here's what the Jewish people and their teachers understood. That's why two loaves of bread. They understood one loaf representing Israel and another loaf representing the Gentiles. That's just kind of what they thought. And so these two loaves of bread represented, if that's correct, and I'm not going to argue with it, but it's not a biblical mandated representation. But God often gave understanding to his people of what was going on, although it wasn't stated biblically. And so these two loaves of bread look like they are the gathering of God's people Jews and Gentiles. Now, why is the gathering of Gentiles so important? Why was that so significant? Why did that have to happen? Why was it absolutely necessary for Gentiles to be part of the kingdom of God? Why? Why did God have to do it? He had to do this. He was obligated to do it. Oh, I didn't think God was obligated to do anything. Yes, he's always obligated to himself to do according to his own nature. He's obligated that way, doesn't he? Isn't he obligated to do according to his own nature? Yes. He has to function according to his own nature or he can't be God. Now, why were the Gentiles, why did God have to do this? 
Because what did he say to Abraham? Remember, especially in Genesis 15, when Gen Abraham says, hey, you know, I'm having a struggle here. We don't have any kids yet. I know you're going to do it right. And the Lord says, Abraham, I'm going to give you a son in your own body. Go outside and look at the stars. And Abraham goes outside and looks at the stars. And Abraham believed God, and the word says, and it was counted or reckoned to him as what? Righteousness. Amen? And then God says to Abraham, Abraham, and he elucidates and expands on the understanding of his promise that it began back in Genesis 12. Go out there because I'm going to do these seven things. You know, you see that in the beginning verses of chapter 12. And in this particular section of Genesis 15, he says, and through you, all the nations shall be blessed. You see, God had to bring in the Gentiles because he had decided to bring in the Gentiles. And he had promised to bring in the Gentiles. And as a result of this decision within himself because of his own personal desire, and because of his promise, God's righteousness demanded that he do it. So he is consistent, isn't he? And so the Gentiles will be saved in this, and this is why we're here. There are not many Jewish people in here that are descended from Jewish folks, a couple, but not many more than that. We're here today because God is righteous, and he has decided, he has decreed, he has promised, he is faithful. Therefore, he had to save Gentiles beginning Maybe not that specific day, but beginning in this great work <clears throat> of the Holy Spirit going into all the world. And specifically, that's why he raised up the Apostle Paul to gather in the real, the, the, the mass of the Gentiles. The Apostle Peter does some of it, but Paul is the one who's given the main ministry of the Gentile church. Peter is given mainly the ministry, I think, to the Jewish church, although there was overlapping and we, we understand that. So why are we here? Because of God's righteous, faithful decree that we would be here. We were represented on that day. God guaranteed it, and he keeps his promise. Amen? So that should help us in our daily walk with God. That should help us when things are not going the way we think they should, or we're fearful, or it looks like something's going to happen, and we thought God had promised. What God promises, he keeps. We just have to be careful that we understood the promise correctly and in the right time frame. That's where we go wrong often. We didn't get the promise as clear as we thought, and we often didn't get the time frame as clearly as we thought. So next week, we'll talk about the Feast of Trumpets. I want you to look at that. What were the trumpets? What did that feast indicate? And secondly, why did this feast, the only feast, begin on the first of the month? None of the other feasts begin on the first of the month. I mean, you'll see that the uh, atonement begins on the 10th, and the booths begin on the 15th. I mean, why the first of the month? Highly significant. There's something there, I think, that the Lord is telling us. So see you next week. <clears throat>